well, in case we haven't uh, met before, like Steve said, my name is Kane Miller. I'm the missions partner of Bureau Christian Church. For the past uh, 12 years, I've been the director of a campus ministry on the campus of Florida State called Christian Campus Fellowship, and I've been ministering to and caring for college students for about 15 years now. Uh, I'm really excited to be with all of you here this morning and bringing you the Word of God. Um, I'm going to pray just real quick before we get into the message for today. God, uh, I pray that this uh, message that I bring this morning would be um, filled with and motivated by your Spirit, um, and that uh, the um, words that uh, I'm about to say would convict and encourage, um, and that it would communicate your grace and your love in a powerful way. As your sons and we pray, amen. Psalm 145 says, I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty, and I will meditate on your wonderful works. They tell of the power of your awesome works, and I will proclaim your great deeds. They celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. In 1772, John Newton wrote one of the most famous hymns of all time. In fact, it's almost certainly more well-known and famous than that psalm that I just read. Amazing Grace was penned by John Newton when he was 47 years old. But what many people might not know about John Newton is he spent a lot of his life rebelling against the Lord. He had a pretty interesting life, but when John Newton looked back on his life, he was always quick to give his mother a lot of credit in his eventual conversion to Christ. John knew that his eventual salvation was inseparable from the early training he had received on his mother's knee and from the many prayers she had prayed on his behalf. He said, though in the process of time I send away all the advantages of these early impressions, they were for a great while a restraint upon me. They returned again and again, and it was a long time before I could wholly shake them off. And when the Lord at length opened my eyes, I found a great benefit from the recollection of them. In her practice of her piety, Newton's mom had, in his own words, stored in my memory, which was then very retentive, many valuable pieces, chapters, and portions of Scripture, catechisms, hymns, and poems. Or in other words, as the psalmist wrote, one generation told of God's mighty works to another generation. And because his mother told him much of God's mighty acts, he remembered it later on in his life. Now, the crazy thing about this, to me at least, is that John Newton's mother died when he was only six years old. So all of this impression that takes place, all of this discipleship and teaching takes place in just a few short years. But the impact of her faith being lived out deeply, um, it tethered John to the Lord so strongly that even in his rebellious youth, even through hardship and through pain, his mind was always drawn back to the ways of the Lord. And this happened because his mother not only made it a part of her life to practice her faith publicly, but to also practice it privately in her own home. Right now, you're all in a series looking at 1 Corinthians 13 and the, looking at the different aspects of love and how that comes together within the family unit. 
Today, my hope is to give you an idea of how loving parents and grandparents and members of Vero Christian Church can effectively prepare children for the college experience as it relates to their spiritual walk in Christ, or maybe not for college, but once they're out of your home. I want to help you all pass on the faith from one generation to the next. And much like I read in Psalm 145, the pattern and the teachings that you see in Scripture seem to indicate that the previous generation carries the burden and the responsibility of passing on the faith from one generation to the next. I think one of the people who understood this more than anyone was Joshua. Joshua was Moses' young assistant, for lack of better terms. Joshua had a really incredible life in the Lord. And eventually he declared his obedience to the Lord by leading the people of Israel to take possession of the promised land. Joshua is possibly most famous for drawing a line in the sand at one point and telling the entire tribe and the nation of Israel that he and his family would not serve false gods, but rather that they would serve the Lord. In his most famous address, Joshua in chapter 24, 15 says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The impact of this leadership was that the people of Israel continued to live faithful to God even after his death. Joshua 24, 31 says, Israel served the Lord through the lifetime of Joshua and the elders who outlived him and had experienced everything that the Lord had done for them. But somewhere along the way, the passing of that faith from one generation to the next broke down after that generation died. Somewhere along the line, the parents and the grandparents failed to instruct their children in the ways of the Lord and the larger spiritual community failed to honor God. Judges 2.10 says, after that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, meaning they had passed away, another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. This was just a few generations after Joshua had passed away. See, the passing of the faith from one generation to the next doesn't just happen magically. The passing on of our faith must continue to be refreshed with each generation, and it must be done with intent, and it must be done with deliberate action. Each generation must be taught who God is and what he has done for all of mankind. In their book, Family Discipleship, Leading Your Home Through Time, Moments, and Milestones, Matt Chandler and Adam Griffin write, your child is not only your progeny, he or she is your protege. Everything that you have learned from and about following Christ is to be passed on to your child to the best of your ability. So if our children are both our progeny and our protege, how can we love them well? How can we set them up for spiritual success? Well, today I want to bring you one simple principle to live by. I don't know if it'll be an easy principle to live out necessarily, but it is a simple one to understand. It finds its inspiration in the life of John Newton uh, and John Newton's mother. It finds its inspiration in my work over 15 years of caring for college students. Um, it's not based on some direct tie to scripture. It's not based on some giant study that the Barna Group did in researching college students. Um, it's actually based on a wisdom principle that I live by called listen to your wife um, because she's actually the one who came up with this. She said it to me one time in conversation 
she was talking about how she, when she kind of like thought of it, it radically shifted the way that she did discipleship in the home. And, and it, likewise, it's done the same for me. It's very poignant. It's very simple. It's really good. And I think it's a really healthy principle for all parents and grandparents and anyone really who is uh, responsible for caring for the spiritual welfare of, of anyone underneath them to employ. Um, it's a little bit anecdotal, but I've seen it play out time and time again. Here it is, and, and I want you to hear this and kind of make it your own, because the passing on of your faith to the children in your care may depend on it. You can call it the 50% principle. It's simply this. You need to live your spiritual life as if the children in your care will practice at most 50% of what they see you privately practice when they're on their own. If you forget everything else I say today, I want you to remember two things. One, Scripture is crystal clear that it is the responsibility of the previous generation to pass on the faith to the next generation. And two, I want you to remember this 50% principle and put it into practice. Live your private spiritual life as if your children or the children in your care will practice 50% of what they see you privately practice when they are on their own. And here's what that means in my mind. Parents, if you want your child to be a regular church attender when they go to college or move out of your home, guess what you need to be in your own home? You need to be regularly attending a church, a community centered on Christ. If you want your child to be regularly engaging with Scripture once they go to college or on their own, guess what they need to witness you doing privately in your own home, regularly engaging with Scripture? Parents, if you want your children to have a vivid prayer life once they go to college or move out, guess what they need to see you doing on a regular basis, having a vivid prayer life. If you want your kids to be generous with their money, be thankful for their meals, be studying Christian books and apologetics, be consuming, edifying, and God-honoring media, then guess what you need to be doing at home when no one else is looking except for your family. If you go to church once a week, expect your child to go to church twice a month. If you read your Bible at home once a week, expect your child to open up their Bible of their own accord two times a month. If you are rarely in prayer, except for in times of crisis, then your child is likely going to grow up believing, because of the model, believing that prayer is only for rare crisis situations. They never see you read your Bible at home. If you don't pray at home, if you don't make Sabbath a regular part of your weekly rhythm, if you don't overtly clarify and explain and demonstrate how you are worshiping God through various means in your life, then guess what you can expect them to do in their college dorms? The fact of the matter is, is if you don't practice spiritual disciplines at home, the only expression, if the only expression your children ever see of your Christianity is lived out one to two hours a week, sitting idly in a church pew, you can almost guarantee what's going to happen when they go to college. You can bank on it. Now, are there exceptions to this rule? Yeah, possibly. I'm evidence of that. I know several other Christians who are. But the simple fact of the matter is, is you have very little control over what your children do when they move away. 
And if you want to love your children well, if you want to do everything in your power now to ensure and increase their readiness to maintain a relationship with Christ once they're away, then you need to live as if your kids are going to emulate 50% of your private spiritual disciplines. Because you can control what you do while they live in your home and the regular practice of spiritual disciplines and scripture reading and memorization, Sabbath, casting down temptation, celebrating Christ in worship and confession, practicing these things among all kinds of other spiritual disciplines in your home will create an environment where they will see expressions of Jesus in you. And it will significantly increase the chance that they mimic those things. Now, of course, you hope that they take your faith and multiply it. Like, that's the hope. That's the prayer. You hope they take your disciplines and they push it to another degree and walk more intently and more intimately with the Lord than you ever did. You hope and pray for exponentials. You hope they do what Timothy did. Timothy was a young man when Paul visited Lystra on his second missionary trip, approximately five years after the first. It's possible that Timothy's family became Christians during the first visit, but regardless of when they became followers of Jesus, Timothy's faith and his leadership of the church in Jerusalem was in part a result of his mother and his grandmother's faith being active and witnessed by Timothy. During the five years between Paul's first and second visit, Timothy matured in his faith under the spiritual guidance of his mother and his grandmother. In Paul's last letter to Timothy, Paul notes of this, and he talks about the family spiritual environment that existed in Timothy's life. He says, 2 Timothy 1, 3 through 5, I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors did with a clear conscience as night and day. I constantly remember you in my prayers Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am now persuaded lives in you. Timothy led the church in Jerusalem, but his faith was first seen and lived out in his mother and in his grandmother. He took their faith and amplified it to being a leader of the church. In fact, maybe one of the most important churches in the history of Christianity. Theologian David Keene says, children mimic their parents' religious experience. They pray as you have prayed in their presence. They may raise their hands in worship when they see you raise your hands. Timothy was no longer acting the part as the good child. He had taken ownership of his faith as Paul had seen the evidence of his faith in Timothy's actions. And this is true for sure, but how can a child mimic something that is non-existent? They can't. And the unfortunate thing is for every student that I have had at CCF or that I have cared for who, who, had, who have taken their faith, their parents' faith, and multiply it, for every one of those students, there are exponentially more students whose parents didn't emulate the faith of the kingdom for them, whose parents live by the world standards over walking in step with the kingdom of God. And I can tell you an almost exact one-to-one ratio that most every student in my time at CCF who has deconstructed their faith or walked away from their faith or abandoned Jesus, whatever you want to call it, every one of those students that I can think of had parents who did not privately practice spiritual disciplines and teach them to their children. Their parents' faith was entirely expressed one to two hours a week via church attendance, which is important, 
But then the problem comes when their children repeat that process at a 50% weakened rate or thereabouts. What they have is a very weak relationship with Jesus. And I don't say that to discourage any of you, but to rather exhort you and encourage you with every fiber in your being to take hold of the charge that God has given you and that I am giving you to own your faith, to give your child a model of how they can live out their faith once they leave your home. And I promise you, it is neither too late or too early to do something now in this regard. It may require some serious repentance, but it's possible. Now, in addition to this 50% principle that I hope you all implement, I want to leave you with three more brief thoughts or things that you can do right now today as you leave here. These are things that I don't have time to do a deep dive on, but I would be remiss if I didn't say them. Because in my 15 or so years of working with college students, I think these are some of the most important ways that you can love your child well and set them up for spiritual success. The first thing is be present. Now, this is for all parents and grandparents and youth group volunteers, but this is a special plea specifically to the fathers in the room, and I say this unapologetically. You all, but especially the fathers, need to understand that your presence in the spiritual formation of your children is critical. And not only is it critical, but God has uniquely granted you a position and a place of authority to lead your families well, especially as it relates to the discipleship of your children. I think all parents are going to be held accountable for this when we stand before the Lord, but fathers especially, as the head of the God-designed household, you are first in line. And you will need to reconcile with the question of did you or did you not pass on the ways of the Lord to your child? Fathers, you need to be present. You need to be present even if that means turning down promotions or changing careers or sacrificing hobbies, or bro time with beer, bro time with your buds, um, something else for the sake of your children. More than ever in this current culture, you need to be present in the lives of your children. This means to the best of your ability, you need to be engaged with their hearts and their minds and their spirits. And fathers, this is especially true of your sons once they reach adolescence. I can unequivocally tell you that the young people who I disciple The ones who know the kingdom of God the best had fathers who loved them well enough to genuinely disciple them. The young people I know who are broken or lost and oftentimes don't know their right hand from their left almost always come from homes where the father was absent or aloof in regards to their discipleship. And if you're a dad or really anyone in here and you're like, I want to take responsibility of these things, but I don't even know where to start, please come talk to me afterwards. I got a lot of resources I can equip you with. The second thing is, is I want you to be approachable and to be a student of your own faith. If you are not willing to disciple your children on all subjects, you need to know that the world is more than willing to disciple your child on all subjects. If you are not prepared to disciple your child on human sexuality, the origins of the world, what constitutes sin and rebellion, and a million other things, know that the world and the culture of theological liberalism is standing by, and I promise you, it will disciple your child. So you need to read up, you need to be a student of theology, of scripture, of doctrine, apologetics, of sociology, etc. You need to talk to your kids about those things 
or know that the world is going to do it for you. You need to be ready and willing and able to communicate to your children that they can literally come to you for anything, discussions on anything, and if they ask a question that you don't know the answer to, you need to be willing to come alongside them and say, I don't know, but let's discover the answer together. Let's study that passage in Scripture together. Let's study that subject together. Listen, God's design of the family is so perfect that whether you realize it or not, adults who care for children in one way or another are discipling your children, are discipling those children. The question is ultimately, what are you discipling them toward? Hopefully it's the kingdom of God. So parents and guardians, be approachable and disciple your children in the ways of the Lord. And the way that you can do this is because you've studied at and looked at every piece of God's creation and the designs of the world through the lens of the kingdom of God. The last thing is, is I want you to be prayerful for your children. This is one variable that every single person in this room has total control over. You don't have control over outcomes per se, but you do have total control over your ability to approach the throne of God every single waking moment that you can think of to pray for your children and your grandchildren and the children of this church. It doesn't matter if a child is 18 days old or 18 years old, you should be seeking the welfare and the spiritual health of children in your care through the means of prayer every single day. So pray for them as if their lives and their eternal destinies hinge on it because it's entirely possible that it does. Lastly, I want to encourage you with one last thought. If you live your life in submission to Jesus as king of every part of your life, if you genuinely live like Jesus is the Lord of your life and every breath that you breathe hangs on his grace and his mercy and his goodness, then you will likely have children who do the same. I am confident that if you live your life in such a way that declares from every cell, every fiber of your being that Jesus is Lord, then I think God in his goodness and in his grace will return that investment. Is it possible that you will have a prodigal child who wanders? Absolutely. Will you sometimes fail to live out your faith in every God-pleasing way? Certainly. But at the same time, you will be able to look back on your life and the intentional discipleship that you poured into the life of the children in your care, and you will be able to do that and feel few regrets. And you will feel like you answered the call and the charge that God has given you. And our God is good. The very same God who sent his son to defeat sin and death, to establish his kingdom, thus adopting us into his family as his sons and daughters. The same God who did that through his son is worthy of entrusting the care of your children to. He is good and he is worthy of that. So let me pray for you and your children today. God, we thank you for um, just the testament that we have of the passing on of this faith from one generation to the next. Father, we thank you um, for your faithfulness and your patience in the times where there have been generations who hadn't passed on the faith, Father. 
Um, I am looking forward to the day of your return. And I hope that it's soon, Father. But in the meantime, may we care for and love our children well. May we disciple them well. May we care for them well. May we lead them into the ways of your kingdom first and foremost out of the love that we have for you. May that be modeled well. And may we reflect your glory and your goodness well to our children and the children that are in our care. We praise you and we thank you for who you are. In your son's name we pray.